All right, let's go ahead and open with prayer. If y'all could agree with me, Father, we thank you for this time as we get into your word. Lord, we love your presence, but we need your word. And Lord, I pray that you would come upon me tonight and that you would speak through me, Lord, your words of life. And Lord, by the awesome presence and power of the Holy Spirit, people are hearing this. You may be driving down the road. You may hear this through live stream. However it is you're hearing this, but I pray all those that are going to be hearing this, allow your precious Holy Spirit to just fill where they're at. And Lord, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, help us, Lord, to really get our minds focused and locked into what you're saying, Lord. And our eyes be anointed, our ears anointed, to be able to see and hear what you're wanting us to see and hear, that you would help give us good, fertile soil of hearts and minds to be able to receive it. And I pray that as I speak this, your word will be as living seeds of truth sown into good, fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives. Water by the precious Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. Lord, let your word be like a hammer that breaks down every, uh, every stronghold. Let it be a light that dispels all the darkness, lies, evil, and deception of the enemy and brings light and truth. And let your word, Lord, go forth like a sword and cut away what needs to go. But we're believing that the winds of your spirit will carry this everywhere it's supposed to go and your angels to watch over it. Lord, we bind the enemy that would try to hinder the word. But Lord, bless this time and let everything be accomplished that you will to be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all mind shutting that door for me? And Brother Zach, if you could bring this down just one more half notch. It's just a little hot. But Lord, we bless you and thank you for it now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. How many of you guys can say, Pastor Scott, I really do love the presence of the Lord. I love his presence. Well, that's what this sermon is about tonight. And let me just open by saying this, because I think a lot of times people don't understand this right here. God loves us more than we understand. And he wants to dwell with us more than we want to be with him. And God loves us so deeply, he wants our fellowship. I think a lot of times we're hard on ourselves. We realize all of our imperfections and all that. And But you have to understand that God sees us as his children, and he sees us through the blood of Jesus. So God doesn't focus on flaws and things like that. He focuses on the fact that he loves us and wants to be with us. And so I say that because that has a lot to do with what I'm going to be talking about. Look at this, the Shekinah, but in Hebrew it's pronounced Shekinah. And this is the scripture that talks about in Exodus 25, verse 8. It says, let them have or let them make a sanctuary for me that I will dwell among them. That's the heart of God. God initiated this. God is saying, listen, make a place so that I can come dwell among my people. And that's how much God loves people and wants to be with us. And so this concept in our minds needs to wrap around the fact that God created man to walk with man in the cool of the day and to spend time with them. Is everybody grabbing hold of this? Listen, God loves us and he wants to spend time with us. He wants that fellowship. He wants his presence in our lives. So the word Shekinah, there it is in the Hebrew script, but actually, just like the word rapture is not in the Bible, the Shekinah is not in the Bible, but it's alluded to. And it's a good word to describe the dwelling presence of God. And so here's what Shekinah means, that which dwells. So if you're taking notes, that'd be the one to write down right there. 
that which dwells. And it comes from the root word, the Hebrew word shekhan, which means to dwell or reside. Listen, I can leave, we can all leave and go do our thing, and I come up here a lot on my own because, you know, being a pastor, I've got to come up here and do things. And when I come into this place, there's always a residing presence of the Lord that just simply dwells here all the time. And as soon as anybody starts worshiping and praying, you can feel that presence increase. But there's always a residing presence. That is what Shekinah means. It is the dwelling presence of the Lord. So what I'm going to do through this sermon is I'm going to give you about seven quick points. Uh, The first ones will be longer than the last. I'm going to give you some things about the glory and how we can have the glory in our lives. Because I believe that River of Life has a heart for the presence of the Lord. And you'll see as I close this out that we need the glory of the Lord in these last days. The Bible says that in the latter days, there are going to be perilous times, they're going to be dark. And the picture that Isaiah 60, 61 paints is that there would be this thick darkness on the earth. But among God's people, the glory would arise and shine so that there would be a glory among his people. And so I believe the darker things get, it's kind of like right now, you know, it's still light out. You look and you can't see the stars, but they're there. The darker the world gets, the more that we are going to shine out. The, the further things go, the more of a distinction is going to be made between who is God's and who's not. And we need the glory. So let me give you a scripture. What, what is holy and what is our attitude toward the holy? I'm going to explain this because I don't think a lot of the church today really understands what the word holy means, okay? Proverbs 9, 10, this would be one to write down to. I couldn't get everything in what you have printed, okay? But Proverbs 9, 10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the holy is understanding. Let me say that again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the holy is understanding. And I looked that up because different translations says knowledge of the Holy One, but that's really not the best translation. The word there, knowledge of the Holy, is kadosh. It is the Holy, okay? It's not Holy One, it's Holy. So God's, God's wanting us to have an understanding of a, a reverential fear, but also of what holiness is. What does holy mean? And how do we see something as holy how do we respond to it as holy because before we can have the glory in our lives we have to understand the holiness of god so here's a couple things real quick holy in hebrew is the word kadosh and it means to set something apart to set it apart from the ordinary The best example I could give, this may not, hopefully this will make sense, but let's say that I had went and purchased two different iPads. One of them I was just going to use for maybe secular business, and that was it. But the other one, I wanted to set it apart for just for the Lord and His purposes. That's it. It wasn't going to be used for secular things. It was just going to be used for what I was going to do for the Lord that iPad would be set apart as holy. 
It's being set apart from the ordinary. It's different. And then the word righteous in Hebrew is tzedek, and it means it's a clean lifestyle. I mean, people that live righteously, they don't do things they're not supposed to do. They know that they used to go out partying on weekends, and they would, you know, get drunk or high and sleep around and do all these sinful things. But now that they've become a Christian, they quit doing that. And instead, they're going to church. They're, you know, now they're tithing. Now they want to witness to people, and they're doing things that they're supposed to be doing, and they're not doing other things. That's a righteous life. It's a life that bears fruit for the Lord. So God is wanting us to be a holy people that are set apart from the ordinary. And what I'm trying to get across with that is this. You need to have this mindset, but you need to teach your children this. True Christians are God's people, and we're not like everybody else. You should be able to go through your neighborhood or wherever you live, and, the, and you know, if say that there was the Lord walking through your neighborhood, and he can see beyond the walls that your home, your family... And the way you are is set apart from the ordinary. Everybody else is doing these things here, but that home is different than everybody else. God has called us to be a pilgrim people. He's called us to be a people that, even though the world is getting darker and darker, there's something so different about God's people. We're, we're uh, you know, the word holy. We're called to be that. And so, let me give you an example of some things in Scripture that are holy. And I hope that this makes, some, you know, makes sense. Number one, God is holy. But also, His Word. Now, there's a lot of so-called holy books. They're not holy. But there's all these different spiritual books out there. There's all these different... But God's Word, the Bible, is set apart from among them. It is set apart from the ordinary. It is the Word of God, and it is holy. God's name is holy. There's many other so-called gods and many other names. But God's name is set apart from the ordinary and holy. The Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought about the fact that God calls His Spirit holy? Oh, there's many spirits. But there's only one Holy Spirit. And He is holy. And he's just as much God as the Son of the Father. Did you know that your tithes and offerings, you know, you make your paychecks, and all that money's there, but what you cut out of that and set apart as tithes and offerings is now set apart from the ordinary, and it's holy. Did you ever think of it that way? God thinks of it that way, and it's in the Bible. God has, has called us to set apart some of our income as holy unto Him. Did you know that other true Christians are holy? God's apostles and prophets and spiritual leaders are set apart unto Him as holy. Here's something else. In the Bible, marriage between a husband and a wife, marriage that's honored by God, and the marriage bed 
is holy. And the Bible says that marriage in the marriage bed is to be honored by all and to remain undefiled. The marriage bed undefiled. Marriage is holy. It's where two people are set apart to God and to each other. Did you realize that places of worship and prayer unto the one living God, the true God, the God of Abraham, that these places are set apart from the ordinary? That's why I don't have in this church, and I won't, have like the things, for example, all the the politics that go on. You know, I know who I'm going to vote for, and I I definitely know who I'm not going to vote for this coming fall. But I'm not going to make this a place that promotes any of that. This is not the place nor the time. This is holy. And politics is not holy. And I'm not going to bring that in here. And the same thing with other worldly things that are out there. Um, I I couldn't imagine having a, a church where... You know, people came to me and wanted to rent it to use it for things that are going to defile it. I couldn't do it. So, no, this is holy. What you're wanting to do is not. And the two don't mix. Did you know that your physical body as a Christian is called the temple of the Holy Spirit? And you know your physical body is set apart unto God as holy? Did you know in the Bible God said that the Sabbath day... And the other times, the Moedim times, that throughout the Bible you see that they were set apart time as holy. It was like the other days were ordinary days. But these days were set apart from the ordinary as holy. Did you know that God made Israel as a nation from Abraham? He created the nation of Israel. And as you know, even though Israel is backslid, far from God, and all that today, but did you know, nonetheless, Israel is the nation among all the other nations that God has set apart as his. And so therefore, God calls it a holy nation, even though they're not right. So, here's something about holy. You can see in here, I'm going to show you some scriptures And y'all hear me with this because there was an intercessor years ago that used to come to our church. She moved to another state, precious lady, and she had a dream or vision. I can't remember which one, but she was telling me about this. And I really feel, because I remember a lot of these things down through the years, and I really feel like today things are starting to come together that people saw in the past, okay? And I'll show you what I mean. She had a dream or a vision where we were all together, River of Life, and the Spirit of God fell, and people were on the ground because of the Holy Spirit touching them. And Jesus had come into the room, but he was, his feet was way off the ground. And the this, this statement was in the dream that this is holy ground. And I was in the dream or vision, whatever it was, and I was talking to her, and I had told her, I said, This is wonderful, but there have been a few people that have actually died in this because they were disrespectful and they did not take serious the holiness of God. And this was a dream or something she had. And so let me just say this. 
And hear what I'm going to say because this is actually very important. When, when a person, place, or thing, whatever, is set apart from the ordinary unto God, and because of that, now you begin to spiritually pray over that and it's cleansed spiritually. Does everybody follow me? And because you cleanse it now spiritually, now the glory of God comes there. Once that happens, you cannot begin to play games with it anymore. Let me show you what I mean. Under the Old Testament, people that disrespected God, His Word, or His holy name were killed under the law. Y'all please pay attention to what I'm saying. Those that disrespected God, His name, or His Word would die under the law, okay? The Holy Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit of God. When the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, you know, you speak against the Father, you speak against the Son, you can be forgiven. But in Matthew twelve thirty-two, I want you all to see something. The Holy Spirit being spoke about as holy, it says if you speak against the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. When it talks about tithes and offerings, and it's saying this has now been set apart unto God as holy. But you can read in the Bible, Malachi 3, when people stole these things from God, that it brought judgment. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? The Bible talks about other Christians and spiritual leaders being set apart as holy. But it's very clear that in Deuteronomy 27, 24, when it talks about um, smiting your neighbor in secret, it's talking about speaking against God's people, speaking against other Christians and leaders. And it's called the curse of Loshan Hora. And it brings judgment. The marriage and marriage bed is to remain undefiled. And your physical body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But when people begin to defile their temple, and they begin through maybe adultery and sexual promiscuity or pornography or whatever, begin to bring a defilement into their marriage and into their marriage bed, it will bring judgment. And let me tell you, this is interesting to me because this is in the New Testament, but it sounds like an Old Testament scripture. 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20, it says... That if you defile God's temple, God will destroy the one that does that. And it goes on in Paul's writings to say, and you are are that temple. So people, when you accept Christ as your Savior, you have to understand that you become set apart from the world. Your physical body becomes set apart as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if you defile that temple, this is not my opinion. This is what the Bible says. God will destroy that person that defiles the temple. You can see all through these scriptures that I gave you that, you know, Israel could never get away with anything that other nations seemed to get away with. And it was because they were a holy nation. Other nations worshipped other gods all the time, but when Israel did it, judgment came and so it's interesting to me that things that have been set apart unto god as holy that whenever people defile that it brings judgment are y'all hearing me so we have to be careful to honor what god honors as holy and treat it as such let me say that again We have to be careful to honor what God honors as holy and treat it as such. So in Jesus' day, I'm going to kind of go through this pretty quick now. But do you guys, I hope that gave a good understanding about holy. 
But once you set apart, I believe River of Life has a heart for this. Once you set apart your life and you set apart your home, your property, you set apart your family, and it's, you're set apart now unto God, you're not like the ordinary, you're set apart. And as you begin to pray and cleanse your life and cleanse your property, and you get the things off that need to go, and then the glory of God comes, it's a wonderful thing. It's an awesome thing to have God's presence in your life. There's nothing like it. But people, some people, and I don't believe this to be river of life, but some people out there, they want the glory, but they don't want to give up other things. And so they begin to mix sin in with the glory, and they don't understand that they're going to bring judgment doing that. In Jesus' day, the Sadducees, the religious people of his day, the Sadducees and Pharisees, the Sadducees were more of the descendants of Aaron and, and the Levites. They were the ones that through blood, you know, through their genealogy, were the ones that had access, a lot of them, into the holy place. But the Pharisees could be made up of other tribes because Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin, but they were people that were zealous for the law. But these were religious people. But how many of you guys know that even though people are very religious, it doesn't mean that they know the Lord. And it doesn't mean that they're, they're right with God. And sometimes they actually are enemies to what God is wanting to do. And we saw that with the Sadducees. The Sadducees come to Jesus and they want to come up against him and buck up against what he's teaching. And they were trying to give him some kind of a crazy question about, you know, this man died and left a wife and then his brother died and he had, you know, because under Levitical law, you had to marry the person. Anyway, and all these people died. Who's whose uh, wife is she going to be at the resurrection? And they were just trying to trap Jesus and cause problems for him. And Jesus simply cut off the issue right there and said, you err because you do not know the word of God, nor do you know the power of God. And religious people, they want to do that. They only know the Bible from a religious perspective. They don't know it by the Holy Spirit. That's why whenever the Apostle Paul had that encounter with Jesus and he was thrown from the donkey... He was blinded. And remember, he had to go have Ananias pray for him. And what? Scales came off his eyes. It's like people that are religious, they have scales over their eyes and they cannot see the way the Holy Spirit wants them to be able to see. They're blinded by their religion. And so today we have modern day Pharisees and Sadducees that are all over. And listen to me. The modern-day Pharisees and Sadducees out there, you realize how many people in the body of Christ as a whole do not believe a large part of what's actually in the Bible. And let me, let me explain what I mean. If you try to talk to a lot of people out there, they go to church, you know, all the time. And I'm talking about tens of thousands of people across this nation. You try to talk to them about spiritual warfare, about angels and demons or something like that, they're going to look at you like you're some kind of a lunatic. And to me, I'm thinking in my mind, have, have you ever taken the time to read what we believe? And then on top of that, you start talking about God's manifest presence coming into a place. And the glory of the Lord, you felt that glory come in and that maybe people saw like a mist or something. They're going to think you're crazy. And I'm thinking, did you ever read the Bible? Because this even happened in the Old Testament. 
You start talking about the gifts of the Spirit, tongues, interpretation, prophecy, faith, all these different gifts. And they're going to think that you're crazy. And I'm thinking to myself, hello, it's all over the New Testament. The reality of Jesus' ministry, I don't believe a lot of them even probably believe um, a lot of what Jesus did because when I read it, I see that Jesus did a lot of teaching, but Jesus also did a lot of healing the sick, raising the dead, and casting out demons. And people would foam at the mouth, fall on the ground, manifesting demons in his presence. People had things like an arm straightened out that was... I mean, miracles. But you start talking about that. Jesus, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever... And they, they think that you need a straight jacket and some people come pick you up and take you to the, the little rubber room because you've done lost your mind and you're crazy. So when I'm talking about the glory of the Lord, I believe that unfortunately a huge portion of the body of Christ does not even have a concept to wrap their mind around about the Lord in His presence. They do not understand the scriptures from a perspective of the Holy Spirit revealing it to them. They have scales on their eyes and they only see what they want to see. And they err because they don't know the power of God today. I'm leading up to something. And so how do we have God's abiding presence? See that Shekinah. That word Shekhan, where the dwelling presence. You see, in the Old Testament, God was giving us the, the picture and type of what was to come. And you can see on your notes, you can see the tabernacle. We have a picture up on the wall as well. But God created this tabernacle for His glory, and that glory of the Lord continually dwelt there. And so people were around that glory, that presence of the Lord continually that were around the temple or tabernacle. So the way that we can have an abiding presence of the Lord in our lives is number one, that we set apart our lives and we set apart our home and our land unto God. Setting apart, okay? I I did a teaching we have on our website about cleansing homes and cleansing land. and, And it walks you through doing that. But see, a lot of people have never been taught about that. And they don't understand. They don't understand why their home maybe seems like it's easy to fight. And it seems like there's not a presence of God. There's not an atmosphere there. You want to pray, but it seems hard to pray. Things like that. That's not God's intention. God wants um, to come dwell among us. But many times people perish because of a lack of knowledge. They're not being taught things. And so first and foremost, we need to set apart our lives, set apart your property unto God to be holy. Secondly, you need to go through and cleanse that land and that property and pray over it and bring it under the blood of Jesus and let it become clean spiritually. And then thirdly, let the glory of the Lord pray that God allow, because you're going to have to ask the Lord, Lord, please let your glory come and settle here. You want to remove out of your home, out of your property, things that do not please the Lord, like idolatry, sexual immorality, ungodly worldliness, foul language, strife, rebellion. Do you remember reading... Many of you probably read Ezekiel. Ezekiel was um, of that Levitical family as a priest, but he was in exile. And God gave him as a prophet, gave him visions, but Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord leave the temple. you realize how grieved that it must have made him? 
He was taken in a vision and he saw the Lord told him, dig through this hole in the wall. And he's down there digging. He gets through and he could see inside. And he saw inside the temple where they had painted uh, demon god things on the walls. They had set up an idol in the temple that they were burning incense to. And how they had defiled that temple. And God had had enough. His glory had been there. That was a place that was set apart. That was a place that had been spiritually cleansed. And that was a place where now His glory abided. The Shekinah, that that residing presence dwelled there. But the priest defiled it. And because they brought that defilement in there, Ezekiel saw the glory of God come out of the Holy of Holies and go up and move out to the holy place area. And stop. And it was like God was waiting for them to repent. And then he saw that there was no repentance. So the glory moved out to the outer court area. And and stopped. It was like God was still waiting. But eventually we know from reading it, the glory of the Lord left. And we know also that that's why the children of Israel ended up being um, exiled. And they ended up falling where Babylon came and destroyed the temple and took them because these type of things were going on. But where the glory of the Lord is, there's protection. But when you start letting sin creep in, the glory of the Lord will leave. That's why the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory. Where there's sin, the glory leaves. I'll tell you something that's real interesting. I don't want to dwell on this, but I've shared this a lot. When Adam and Eve, the Bible says in Psalms, because I'm doing this off the cuff, I don't have the reference, you have to look it up. But in Psalms, the Bible says that God wraps himself with light as a garment. And that's the glory. And that God created Adam and Eve in his image. And it's interesting because it says in Genesis that they were naked, but they knew no shame. And the Hebrew word, this is why sometimes you've got to look up the Hebrew behind the word and look at it. The Hebrew word is arom, A-A-R-O-M, okay, A-R-O-M, arom, and it actually means partially nude, and you're thinking, what's going on? And then, later, after they ate of the tree, and they sinned, it says after that, that they were naked, and the word there is arom, E-R-O-M, and that word means completely nude. And so you start putting some pictures together here in Scripture. And I believe, do you remember when Moses was on the mountain and he came down and his face shone with the glory? And they made a veil because they were scared of Moses. Here comes that guy with the glowing face, you know, and they all ran from him. Well, I believe when God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, they were naked as far as physically, okay? But I believe that like Moses' face, the glory of the Lord enveloped them. But when they sinned, all, all who sinned fall short of the glory. I believe that glory left. And can you imagine living your whole existence in that manifest glory on you like a garment all the time? And then all of a sudden, it's completely gone. Can you imagine how afraid they felt, how vulnerable they felt? And they ran and hid. And they began to try to get some kind of fig leaves or something put together so that they could feel that weight of that presence of God again. And as we make our lives our homes, as we make this a place of worship and prayer, that's where the glory comes. As you begin to speak blessings and you welcome the Holy Spirit, 
Those four things will help bring the glory into your life. Probably the greatest thing that I could recommend about the glory, though, is the blood of Jesus. Take communion and bring your life, your family, and your home under the blood. And let me give another couple quick things. Can you hand me that? I want to show you something. I've shared this before, but I'm going to give a little bit more to it this time. All right. Don't mistake the study of biblical Hebrew roots where we understand the Old Testament from a New Testament perspective, okay? Don't mistake that for rabbinical Judaism. Let me explain what I mean. I do not believe that Christians are engrafted into a secular nation. Are y'all hearing me? When we talk about Israel, I don't believe Christians are engrafted into a secular nation. I don't believe that Christians are engrafted into broken off branches. It doesn't even make any sense. So how do you reconcile? See, people want to look at Romans 11 and talk about, you're not going to understand Romans 11 unless you read Romans 9 and 10. And that's where a lot of people don't do that. So Christianity, the Bible says that you're engrafted into the olive tree, the commonwealth of Israel. But what you have to understand about that is this. I believe it's portrayed in the lampstand that was in the tabernacle. If you can look at this, if if you're listening to this and you can't see a picture, you can Google uh, the tabernacle of Moses and look at the lampstand. It will give you a good picture of it, okay? But anyway, on the bottom here is a base. This has to do with Abraham and the faith of Abraham. Did you know that with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then through the law, did you know that these people, they were righteous people that still died in faith? Did you know that? You know what they were believing for? They were believing on the one who would come. The Bible says when when Abraham went to offer Isaac on Mount Moriah, And he called the Lord Jehovah Jireh. Jesus said, he saw my day. He saw me. There was a revelation among them that there would come a Messiah who would fulfill everything. They died in faith. You understand what I'm saying? And so whenever we're talking about being engrafted into this commonwealth of Israel, we're not talking about a secular nation. The root system, the foundation that's laid down deep in those roots, it goes back to the faith of Abraham. And the branch. How many times did we read in Isaiah and other places where Jesus was called the branch that came up out of that root system right here in the middle is Jesus. He's the centerpiece of everything. Everybody that lived back before he came, they died, those that were righteous, they died believing in the one to come. And everybody that lives in our day and since he came, we look back at the cross and we put our faith in the one who did come in the past. So yet everybody before and after had faith in him. Does that make sense? Even though they didn't know him, they still were looking by faith in the one who was to come. So Jesus is the centerpiece of everything. He is the fulfillment, if you will, of the commonwealth of Israel. He is Israel's Messiah. And it's interesting to me because if you were to bring these down a little bit on each side, it would look more like a cross. You could make it that way. But before Jesus came, when you're looking at the age of the law, it seemed like that there was kind of two Jews for every one Gentile. 
because God was moving more in Israel at that time that were righteous and that put their faith in Jesus to come, the one to come. They didn't know his name, but they knew he was coming. And they died that way. And then, but on the other side of the cross, it seems like now there's two Gentiles for every Jew. And so God is sovereign over all. He sees the big picture. And another thing that's neat about the lampstand is this, is that the centerpiece is called, the light here was called in the tabernacle, the uh, Ner Tamid, and it was supposed to never go out. But it was from this light, Ner Tamid means eternal light. It was from this middle light that all the others were lit. What did Jesus say? I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that abides in me, I will abide in him. In the light, the sevenfold manifestation of the Holy Spirit, that light comes. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. So with that said, what I'm trying to get across here is everything goes back to Jesus. Abraham saw his day. Every person that was righteous back then, every time that they brought a little lamb or a goat or a calf or something to the tabernacle and they had that sacrifice for the sin of their family, they were righteous and they knew that there is somebody coming that will be the fulfillment of this one day. And that's why when they died, they went to a place called paradise, Abraham's bosom, where they were hid away for a time. But when Jesus died on the cross and he fulfilled everything, see, their sin had just simply been covered by the blood of animals. It was temporary. But when Jesus died on the cross, his blood washes away all of our sins forever. It's gone. And he went down into the underworld and he said, guys, it is finished. And he brought them up out of there and took them to heaven. I can't get into all of that too much tonight, but I'm just trying to show you that we're not engrafted into broken off branches and it's some kind of weird rabbinical Judaism stuff. You're not engrafted into that. You're not even engrafted into a secular nation. You're engrafted into what the Bible calls the commonwealth of Israel, but that is Jesus. Everything's about Him. I know it's a mystery. It's not easy to understand, but that's the truth. All right, here's some more things. For people to understand the New Testament, you have to understand the Old. I'm going to start closing out with this. Here's the last couple things. The Lord, through Paul, said you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple is synonymous with the tabernacle. So it could say you're the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit, and it would say the same thing. But you're not going to fully understand the tabernacle that, you know, somebody says to some guy, let's say some guy that has never read the Old Testament, never even read the New Testament. You go up to him, he accepts Jesus as his Savior. The Holy Spirit moves upon him. He truly accepts Christ. And then you tell him, hey, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The only thing he's going to get out of that is, okay, you're telling me that now the Holy Spirit lives in me. That's all he's going to get out of it. And that's, that's fine. because that's, But there's a lot more to the tabernacle than just that. You're also not going to understand the priesthood. The Bible says it through Peter, he said that we're a holy nation, we're a royal priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. If everybody here was to close their eyes and I said picture a priest, most people would picture either a Catholic priest, an Anglican priest, or something like that. And it has nothing to do with biblical truth. If I was to go throughout most churches and say close your eyes and think of a priest, they're not going to think of a biblical priest of Aaron and his priesthood. 
You have to understand the Aaronic priesthood to understand now the new covenant priesthood. And I'll show you what I mean. What Israel had in the natural, we have in the spiritual. The priest had a layer of white. And how many knows that now in Christ, we're, we're the righteousness of God in Christ. We have a robe of righteousness and garments of salvation. Our sins are washed away and we're made righteous before God. That's the clothing of righteousness. The blue tunic, the power of God. We're clothed, the Bible says in Acts 1-8, wait in Jerusalem, you know, you're going to be clothed with power from on high. This is the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the power of God. The neck was reinforced because you're not supposed to grieve the Holy Spirit. The bells and pomegranates around the bottom, the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit. But nobody would understand that if they didn't understand the types and shadows. The gold layer was the glory of God. We as priests are called to carry the glory. Even the Old Testament priests carried the ark on their shoulders. We're called to carry the presence of God. And there was also these shoulder pieces that would go down to a breastplate that had the 12 tribes of Israel, the stones. It is the responsibility. It's on the shoulders of the priesthood to pray for God's people. It's our responsibility. See, nobody would get that if you just tell them, hey, close your eyes, think of a priest. And they're thinking of something that has nothing to do with the Bible. But if you understand what the Old Testament laid out and you bring it into the New Testament, you understand we have the fullness and the reality in Christ. The five major offerings, the seven major feast days. In the feast days, Jesus fulfilled Passover his death. Remember, the re- he was in the tomb on unleavened bread, raised from the dead on the first fruits. All these have New Testament realities. But also, it's prophetic because Jesus fulfilled the spring feast at his coming. Pentecost was fulfilled at Acts chapter 2. But we're looking for the last three feasts to be fulfilled when Jesus catches away his bride, Yom Kippur, whenever Israel goes through the days of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation, and then, of course, tabernacles, when Jesus comes and rules and reigns for a thousand years. But see, nobody would understand this if you don't go back to the Old Testament and bring it into the New. Are y'all following me? The same thing with a, a tallit, a prayer shawl. You know that we are now the temple, the tabernacle, the Holy Spirit carriers of God's presence. You know, Israel had the shofar, but they fought natural enemies with natural weapons and natural warfare. But now, under the New Testament... We're fighting princes and powers and world rulers and wickedness in the heavenlies. And it's a spiritual battle. And now the shofar is used to tear down spiritual strongholds. And the mezuzah as well is an outward sign of a place that's been dedicated unto God. Let me give you two more things. Since we're living tabernacles of the Lord. And we're supposed to carry his presence. I talked about these offerings. Do you know what the place of the tabernacle was? It was a place where God's presence was. But at the tabernacle, what you had a lot of, you had a lot of worship and prayer. You had a lot of sacrifice going on. And you also, it was a place of giving where you gave your tithes and offerings and all that to the Lord. So for me, I'm just sharing this with you guys, but I want you all to please give me your best ear because this was really powerful in my life, okay? I have a day out of the week that I, I spend where I, you know, it's, we do this Watchmen program, so this is my day. It's on Monday. I have this day where I pray and fast some, 
But on this day also, I, I was, I'm able to give financially from the church you guys give, but also, you know, myself as well, whatever. All of it goes out, and it's a giving unto the Lord, to the poor. And on Monday, I have this time of prayer, fasting, and giving, and my wife will join with me. I'll ask her to please pray about these specific things. We pray together, and others in my family do. But as I've made this my home like a little tabernacle where there's prayer and fasting, there's worship, there's giving. You know, we come together and pray in unity. That glory of the Lord has come in really strong. Y'all see what I'm saying? Even though you may not give from your home, what I'm saying is when you bring your tithes and offerings to the church, but when you pray at home, you know the Lord recognizes your giving. You know, it's interesting to me because in the Old Testament, there was a sin offering and a guilt offering. The sin was when you sinned, and it was unintentional, really. The guilt offering was when you sinned and you kind of did it on purpose. You knew, you knew it was wrong. But there were three other offerings. The burnt offering, where you brought something and it was burned on the altar. You know what God's wanting from us? He's wanting us to lay our lives down on the altar. And that His holy fire come and burn out everything that needs to go. And that we become living sacrifices unto Him. Holy. There was what's called the, the mincha, the grain offering. You know what the Lord's wanting? He's wanting for us to begin to work the fields. He's wanting for us to begin to be active for His kingdom. You know, if, if you're called into praise and worship, or you're called more into prayer, or you're called to work with young people, or called to go out on the streets, but that you're serving how you're called to serve. You know what the Lord's looking for also? The shilamim, this is the fellowship offering. He's looking for a people that will spend time with Him. These are the offerings. What I'm getting at is this. Let's make our life a modern-day living tabernacle where God's glory can come dwell. And God showed us, if you'll make this place a place of sacrifice, where you're a burnt offering, and you're serving me, and you'll spend time with me, it's a place of worship and prayer, a place of giving, where you take maybe your your tithes and offerings and pray over them, and from that place you're going to bring it to the house of God. And you make it like a little tabernacle. You watch, the glory of the Lord will come. There was a saying in the Brownsville Revival, where Dick Rubin brought a lot of this teaching into Brownsville. That's why the revival came, in my opinion, in many ways. But he said when the pattern is right, the glory will fall. And that became a big saying in the Brownsville revival. It went all over the world. But it's true. God gave us the pattern in his word. But you have to understand these Old Testament types and shadows and how they're brought into the new. Does that make sense? When you understand it rightly, you can. Ha- there's a pattern. And when you line your life up with the Word of God, that's when the glory of God will come. Hopefully all this is making sense tonight. But let me say it this way. I want my life and my family set apart. I want to cleanse my life and my family to where things are clean spiritually. I want the heavens to open and the glory of God to come down. But it's going to come down because we've cleansed our lives. Let me say that again. I want my life, and I'm sure you feel the same way, to be set apart unto God. I want my life and my home spiritually cleansed so that the glory of God can come. 
but I don't take that glory lightly. I understand where something is set apart from the ordinary and it's holy, and now the glory of God is. I understand that you don't play with that and you don't you don't bring unrepentant sin there. I understand that, and I understand the patterns that God has in the Scripture, where these uh, where it's fulfilled. Where I want to be a burnt offering. I want my life consumed with the Holy Spirit's fire. I want God to burn out of me everything that doesn't please Him. And I want my life to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto Him. These scriptures make a lot more sense when you understand where they were coming from when they wrote it. And I want my life to be a grain offering where I'm faithful serving where He wants me to serve and I'm bearing fruit. I want my life to be a, a fellowship offering, a peace offering, the Shalemim where I spend time with Him. And as we do these things, I believe the glory of God will come and abide. You know what I like about the word the Shekinah? I like that word because it means to dwell. You know, it's one thing to have the glory come in and then leave. It's another thing for the glory to come stay. I know you are soaking this in tonight and you're quiet. But I want the glory of God to abide. Amen? Y'all are a little quiet on that one. As it's easy to have a visitation. Listen, you know, whenever we live here in the south, we have vegetation. You go south of us, you've got palm trees. But you go up north, where Ed's from, and you don't have palm trees. All right? Why? Because we have a climate that's conducive to different vegetation here. God is looking for places where, you know, it's one thing that if you lived in the south and you had some crazy abnormal weather come through, that would just be an aberration or an anomaly. It just happened and it was gone, but it would go back to the normal weather. That's one thing. But whenever you keep having the same weather for a long period of time, it becomes a climate and a culture. And God is wanting churches to become glory cultures. Where it's not just every once in a while you have a good service and the presence blows in and blows right back out. God's wanting a people that can learn His holiness where His glory can come and stay. And what I see a lot of times among a lot of churches because they now things have gotten so shallow, it's concerning, they have no concept of a holy fear of God anymore. There's no concept of the holiness of God anymore. Are y'all hearing me? And because of that, the glory is far from these places. They might worship and there might be a little presence trinkle in and go right back out. But they don't have what I'm talking about tonight with the Shekinah that abides. And I want an abiding presence of God. Mount Zion was a place in the Bible that, that referenced the glory among his people. Where this Mount Zion was God dwelling among his people. Okay? Now I want you to look at these scriptures. When God comes and dwells among his people, when his glory comes among us, here's some things. God said from Zion, his blessing goes forth. Psalm 128.5. You want God's blessing? It comes from the glory being in your midst. I had a prophetic man tell me the gold falls to gold. He didn't even know anything about me in this respect. But as soon as he prayed for me, 
he's, he referenced, he said, the gold follows the glory because he's basically saying that because he didn't even know me, but he knew my heart for the presence of God right there. It's prophetic. But he was saying that God's blessing and his abundant financial provision is where his glory is. Are you hearing what I'm saying? It's a miracle. It's like Obed-Edom. When the ark was brought into Obed-Edom's house, everything began to prosper. It was supernatural. From Zion, God's revelation was made known. You know where people say, you know, sometimes I've had people ask me this actually. Pastor Scott, where do you get some of this revelation? Just spending time in the glory. Seriously, that's it. You spend time in the glory. You spend time with the Lord, maybe praying in the Spirit, but God gives you revelation in His presence. Revelation comes in the presence of the Lord. In Zion, God's authority was established. In Zion was a place of refuge and protection. In Zion was a place of healing and forgiveness. Zion experienced abundant provision. Zion was a place of great joy. All of this came because of God's presence. That's what Zion means, where God's presence dwelled among his people. That's Mount Zion. Now let me close with these last couple things, but I want you to really grab hold of this tonight. Hebrews twelve eighteen says, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. It's talking about Sinai. Don't you picture this? You remember Mount Sinai. Everybody saw the mountains shaking and quaking. The glory of the Lord came. You know, there was this shofar blast. They were scared half to death. This is what Hebrews says. You, children of God, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched with a physical hand. Blazing fire, darkness, gloom, whirlwind, judgment, basically. You've not come to that. People that saw that begged that no further word be spoken to them. They cannot bear the command. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it'll be stoned. Even if a donkey touched the mountain, it would be stoned, okay? But rather, verse 22, you, people of God, have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly, to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Our kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom, and it has to do with God's presence and it has to do with this, you know, apostolic government and all of that. But this is, this is a spiritual reference here. Mount Zion is a reference to God's presence among his people. Deuteronomy twenty three fourteen. For the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you and deliver you from your enemies. Your camp must be holy so that he will not see among you anything indecent and turn away from you. Think about this for a minute. We sing the song tonight, Walk Into the Room. Revelation reveals Jesus as the one who walks among the lampstands. The lampstands, it's a reference to the churches. Jesus walks among the churches. I want you to picture this with me. Those that really love him and know him that are really his, he is walking among us. He is alive and he is among us. Where two or three gather, he said, I'll be in your midst. But look at this. For the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you and to deliver you from your enemies. Your camp must be holy. So that he will not see something among you that's indecent and turn away from you. We need that glory here. It's a protection. Ephesians 5.10 tells us, 
carefully learn what pleases the Lord. It's our responsibility. Paul was speaking this to a Gentile church. He was basically saying, if I could paraphrase this, paraphrase this, Ephesians, you're Gentiles that studied and learned in Greek culture, but you don't know the scriptures. You don't know the stories of the tabernacle, and you don't know the stories of the holiness of God. You haven't learned that. I'm telling you that you be careful to learn what pleases the Lord. That's what he's saying. And look at the glory of the Lord in these last days. Isaiah 4, 4. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodstain of Jerusalem from her midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over all the area of Mount Zion and over all of her assemblies a cloud by day, even a smoke and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. And for over all the glory will be a canopy or a defense. It will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and a refuge and protection from the storm and rain. I believe what Isaiah is saying there is this. There's going to come a day because Isaiah saw Jesus. He saw the latter days. I believe Isaiah is saying here there's going to come a time for Mount Zion, for God's true people, that the Lord is going to come the latter days And the Lord is going to do a deep consecration of his people. And the glory of the Lord will begin to settle over his people like a canopy of protection from the darkness and the evil that's going to come upon the world. I hope this encourages you to. I feel in my spirit something as I've been preaching this. We want to be, River of Life wants to be set apart. When I say set apart, I mean set apart from the world, but I hate to say it, but it's true, and I say this with love and humility, but even set apart maybe from others that profess Christianity but aren't really living the way they need to. We need to be set apart unto God. Amen. And let the Lord do a cleansing and ask that His glory come. And if you will make your life a place where the blood is honored, maybe the communion table, but the blood is honored, it's a place of worship and prayer and giving The things that were going on in the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord can come abide with you. And that glory, when the glory of the Lord comes, that glory will move among you and will protect you and deliver you from your enemies. That glory will be like a shelter around you. Where the glory of God is, like Obed-Edom's house, somehow there's prosperity. It's not natural. It doesn't make sense. It's like I have the same job, but yet I'm prospering. I didn't get a raise, but yet I'm prospering. It's the glory. Where the glory is, there's, there's healing and health. Where the glory is, there's protection. Where the glory is, there's great prosperity. And let me close by reading this story. You guys like revival stories. Let me close with this story. This is a story about the Moravians. All right. Here's a, a little look at continual prayer. I've been preaching this for a long time, but in the body of Christ, there's not enough prayer. I think that that's why things are the way they are in America and around the world, is because you talk to some of the elderly, maybe Pentecostal people that are like in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, talk to these older Pentecostal people, and they'll tell you, Man, we used to have prayer meetings all the time. People come early to church and pray. They'd be walking the aisles, praying in tongues. 
you know, we, people come up to the church on their own and pray. There was just a lot. There was a lot more prayer going on. And because of that, there was a lot more revival going on. But here's the story. The question is, does a continual sacrifice of prayer help bring revival and maintain revival? Here's the story. You guys have heard about the Moravians. All right, here's the story. One of the greatest revivals in modern history began in a little German village of Hernut. However you say that. I have visited there. I'm reading this from a book. Even today, it's a very small village in eastern Germany, hard to find on a map. Yet something took place that literally shook the world. Remember me saying over and over, it doesn't take a whole lot of people? In the early 1700s, a group of Moravian refugees came into Germany. They were fleeing the 30, uh, 30 years war that was in Moravia. There was a German nobleman named Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Okay? <laughs> he gave them permission to settle on their estate, on his estate. And they founded, y'all listen, the Moravians fled. They came to Count Zinzendorf and, they, and he let them live on his estate. He was a very wealthy man. And they founded this little village um, called Her- uh, Hernhut. However you say it, I don't know. But anyway, quickly became a haven for Protestant refugees coming across Europe. There was a great deal of division and strife among these groups. So Count Zinzendorf asked the entire village to come together for a communion service at the Lutheran church in the nearby village. I'm not, I'm not even going to try to pronounce this village, okay? Okay, so that service was held on August the 13th, 1727. As the Moravians all crowded in this church, Count Zinzendorf climbs the stairs of the high pulpit and begins the service. And listen to this. They come together, what? I'm telling you, the communion table. There's, there's a, did you know that's how the Cane Ridge Revival broke out? Did y'all know that? The Cane Ridge Revival broke out because they took communion. Did you know Wesley and them and their, their little holy club group they had, they talked about how they took communion and it seemed like the heavens opened and the glory came down. But anyway, they came together for a communion service and suddenly the Holy Spirit fell. No one present at that service ever told exactly what happened except to say that the place was filled with signs and wonders and miracles. They left that place changed. Strife and confusion were gone. They burned with love for Jesus and each other and a passionate commitment to reach the world came into them. In the days following the outpouring, the leaders met to discuss what do we do next. Foremost in their minds was the question of how to keep the presence of God in their midst. Now this really fits with this sermon. You know, we have the glory come sometimes, but how does it become a culture? How does it become a part of our lives where the glory abides continually? How can we have the Shekinah, the the cloud? And so they were asking, how do we do that? And in their minds was that question, and they didn't want to lose what they had received. So in the midst of this, Count Zinzendorf remembered God's instructions about the tabernacle. And he said, we must keep the fire on the altar burning at all times. So in response to this directive, 
the Moravians divided up the day and night into watches and started 24-hour prayer in their village. As they continued to pray 24 hours a day, seven days a week, people took shifts, okay? Did you know that this prayer meeting continued like this for 100 years? Some of y'all think, no, it did. It did. They started the original 24-7 prayer movement, for real. It's a historic fact. As they continued in prayer 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, listen to this, the the Shekinah glory of God began to dwell in their midst. The Moravians continued that cycle of 24-hour prayer for over 100 years. The results of that prayer meeting sound like something out of the book of Acts. From that little village, missionaries were sent all over the world. At that time, the church in Europe sent out an average of one missionary for every 5,000 church members. But in that little village where the Moravians were, there was a missionary for every um, 60 church members being sent. Within a few years, there were missionaries from that village in North America, South America, Greenland, South Africa, um, Australia, even into Tibet. One Moravian convert was a young, listen to this, we know this story, Brother Zach taught about this, John Wesley. You remember how John Wesley was on a boat that was going to sink, and he was scared half to death, and these Moravian missionaries were just sitting there, just singing their little song, whistling, just happy. He's like, aren't you afraid to die, man? And they said, no, we're ready, we know Jesus. And, And Wesley was very religious before that, he was good Anglican, very religious, but he didn't know Jesus. And the Moravians introduced him to salvation. Wesley traveled to the village and caught the revival fire and brought it back to England. It became known as an evangelistic or Wesleyan revival. We know all about this because something sparked. And let me, I could go on reading this for a long time here. There's another little bit of it. But the revival, we know the story of how the Moravians prayed And it brought that awakening that happened where Whitfield, Wesley, Edwards, all these guys, that first great awakening in America, it goes back to the prayers that was going on among the Moravians. And when this revival, this first great awakening hit America, it was so powerful. Benjamin Franklin described the effects of the great awakening like this. From being thoughtless and indifferent about religion, it seems as if the world was growing religious. One could not walk through a town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families on every street. It swept our nation. That revival changed the face of America. God always wants His presence and power to dwell among His people, but we have to catch what was going on at the tabernacle, the pattern, that your life become a place of worship and prayer. Holy Communion, where you're speaking blessings and you're spending time with the Holy Spirit, saying, Holy Spirit, come, spend time here. And you welcome the glory. And your life becomes a living sacrifice. Where you're, you're now a burnt offering sacrifice. The work you do for the Lord is a grain offering and you have that fellowship with Him. Spiritual sacrifices that please the Lord. You're now becoming a priest unto God where you're worshiping and spending time with Him and praying for God's people. That is the pattern of where the glory of God will come and abide. 
All right, I'm going to close this out. Man, I love the glory of the Lord. I'm going to tell you this. I'd only say this because I want people to get so stirred up and hungry. But I love what I feel in River of Life, but it's not any different in my home. I'm trying to tell you, you can have this in your home. I'm saying that so people get stirred up and like, man, I've got to have this in my life. I'm hungry for God's presence. But when I get up and pray in the morning and I spend time with him, I feel that glory come. Sometimes you've got to rebuke the enemy, okay, because sometimes there's a resistance. But I feel that glory there. And when I go to bed at night, my wife and I pray together, and I feel that glory come in. But it's your life being a dwelling place. And don't think that the enemy won't fight that. Sometimes you'll feel an oppression. But bind and drive him away. Get him out of there. In Jesus' name, I bind that get out. And as you clear the air, clear the atmosphere from that stuff, you'll, you'll sense that glory really strong. And something interesting is this. Two quick things. Did you know that you talk about the morning and evening sacrifice that was in the tabernacle? God called that um, it to be eternal, that, you know, throughout all generations. And so it was called Korbanot Tamid, which means the eternal sacrifice or sacrifices, or Korban Tamid, the eternal sacrifice. And so every morning and every evening, there was that time of sacrifice and prayer and worship. And you know, in the New Testament time, I believe there's something really powerful about spending time with the Lord when you get up in the morning. But there's also something really powerful as you spend time before you go to bed at night. I believe that. I believe there's something there that's really powerful. And about that, let me say this. Did you know that in the Hebrew mindset, the nighttime when the sun goes down is the beginning of the next day? And so... Your evening sacrifice, when you pray before you go to bed at night, did you know that's really, in a Hebrew mindset, that's really the first prayer of the day? Isn't that interesting? There's something about that. And let me say this too, about the feast. You know, in the springtime, the first early feast, what's it about? Remember we had that Badikit comments where it had that little, uh, little candle and the feather, remember that? And you go through and get all the leaven out of your house. So what is the early um, Passover time? It's about getting all that junk out of your life. It's an outer court. Follow me. It's an outer court. Getting washed in the blood. Cleansing your life. And then, what's next? Pentecost. Where the Holy Spirit fell so powerfully. And you're really empowered like a clothing of power that comes. And what is it for? The harvest. You have a burden for souls. And God really empowers you. That's the holy place. But then you know what the fall feasts are about? Tabernacles. That God come tabernacle and dwell among us. You know what that is? The glory. The holy of holies. So even in the feast, God is speaking to his church. Cleansing, empowerment, and get into my glory.